I can't fully appreciate what it must be like to live in Paris, Texas today any more than I can say I understand what it feels like to have been alive in New York City on that fateful year, which seems like so long ago now. I do yet know what it feels like to sometimes feel a little more helpless than I like to admit, a little more confused than I want to be my reality. When evil takes human form, it becomes sometimes very vicious. It can feel very punitive and almost beyond our comprehension. When people have a picture of God in their minds that motivates them to give their lives in taking the lives of other innocent persons, even though they don't believe they're innocent, just some person who's not in any way engaged in battle with them. It's just hard for me to understand that. It's hard for me to comprehend how hurtful that must be to God. To see his children so needlessly and senselessly slain must grieve his heart greatly. It's not that we don't know disappointment and hurt Because we've all experienced it in small ways and in different ways at different times in our lives. But certainly, this is one of the things in our world at this point in time in its history. That we're quite sure that when God breathed into us the breath of life, he was not intending for us to treat one another in the way that we sometimes do. All of us being created in the image of God himself. Certainly the people of Israel must have been struggling in trying to understand who they were as God's people. A nation that had once been so great and so strong, so proud and so true, so convinced that they were God's own chosen ones, and in fact they were, could only look around in Babylon after the time of their captivity there in the 6th century B.C. and wonder what had happened even though the prophets had been telling them for so long that their sin had caused their rebellion against God and that God had brought them back to a place where he could remake them and reshape them again into the people he needed them to be. Yearning for a call from God to restore them to who they once were, God speaks to the prophet Isaiah in a voice that is hearable, but yet different. Because this God says to these his children, once again I'm going to deliver you. And then he recalls to their minds the deliverance of, of the past where he brought them through the water out of the exodus. He recalls to mind all the things he built within these people of his, a sense of belonging to God. And him belonging to them. Having delivered them and brought them and established them in the promised land after those many years in the wilderness, they grew to be a great and powerful nation. And I'm sure all that was running through their minds and their hearts must have begun to beat faster. He's going to do it again. He's coming back. 
They had visions of walking through on water again and walking through water. They had visions of a God who was going to come and destroy these Babylonians, these Chaldeans in their very sight and deliver them in mighty and powerful ways. You could almost hear them leaning forward into the words of the prophet. And then the prophet does a strange thing. He turns the story on them in such a way that I'm sure they were shocked. He says to them quite clearly, after having told them that he was going to redeem them, in the, if you will, in the midst of everything they had heard, he then says, oh yeah, and by the way, don't call to mind the way I did it before. Just forget all that. Whoa. Whoa. It's very hard to forget all of that. It's very hard to see God speaking to us in what he calls, and he says to them, I'm going to do something new. Oh, we humans so love to hear words that God is going to do something new. Right? When a preacher says he's got a new plan, what do you do? Some of you go home and cringe and wonder what is happening in that weird person's mind. There's nothing wrong with the old. What do you mean new? What did God mean when he said, I'm going to do something new to these, his his people, his chosen ones, his witnesses, fallible though they were. He still claimed them. He still called them. He still believed in them. We think about that and we think about what it means. And quite frankly, I can't get out of who I am just like they couldn't get out of who they are. I am wise beyond your years. Not so much the rest of you. I'm young compared to some of you, and I'm loving that. But to most of you, I'm not so young anymore, and I don't like that at all. But the reality is, for me, to be alive in these days causes me to pause often and to say, who is God calling the church to be? That's not easy for me to do because I know how to do church. I know how to experience church. I know how to bring hope to fallen congregations where they've never succeeded before. I get that. I understand that. I can handle that because I've done it before. I've been doing this 38 years. Surely I figured something out by now, right? <laughs> And yet, as I look at the church today, the church, the church in these United States, that's really the church that I know, my heart breaks. I feel a little uneasy. And I often cry to the Lord, what else? What else? Why are so many born since 1980 turning away from the church? Why is it that I go to something called um, the thing I went to Thursday? What? Say it louder. Can y'all say it louder? How, how much does who care? Jesus cares. I learned it in Sunday school, and so did you. 
They thought I just wasn't able to hear because of my age, right? Yeah. <laughs> I get it. They were all under 30 that were saying, Jesus cares. Goes, Open ears. Jesus cares. Yes, you're 30. 30. Wow. I'm so glad I'm not 30 again. Not because of you, but because of who I was at the age of 30. Actually, 30, I was at Asbury Seminary. It was glorious three years. I wouldn't mind that three years again. But when I think about the church, and I think about pouring out substantially who I am in terms of hours or money or interest or sweat or strain, and I look at today's church, I get a little nervous. I get a little disappointed. I get a little motivated in ways that sometimes people don't understand because I love the church. I can't change that and I don't want to change that. But you know who I love more than church? I love people. All kinds of people. I love the people who are in churches and I love the people who are not. But you know the stage kind of feels like my mind lately. And I didn't ask for it to be set up this way. David, I think, was leaning to the right this week. Your left. I don't know. It feels so full over here. This feels like church as I know it now. I didn't always know church this way, though, did I? I used to know church where there was a piano and an organ and a choir behind me. And I set up the whole service staring out the congregation. Now I only do that while I'm preaching. I think I like that better for many reasons. One, the recollection of the time when a young woman stood up to sing a solo that her mother was trying out to be our choir director and her young daughter got up to sing because the mother told me how beautifully she sang. And on the third note, I so wanted to be sitting where you were because none of the notes were good. It was all painful. Have you ever tried to sit through pain going, thinking I'm dying up here. Get her off the stage. Who are you, woman? Who told you your daughter could sing? She can't sing. A lick. She's in front of God and everybody showing that. You should be embarrassed. Wipe that grin off your face. You're a musician. You hear her. Come on. I like it better sitting out there where I can think what's going on up here and I can make faces and nobody knows it. <laughs> Church is precious. And quite frankly, and I know I don't say it often enough or sometimes in ways that you hear it, but this church is the church I've been looking for for many, many years. You do so many things right. You do. Your knowledge of the scriptures sometimes worries me as I get ready to preach. I'm thinking most of them know this passage better than I do. Many of them are leave, living this passage better than I do. I think of, when I look at you, of the faces that give so unselfishly that have supported the ministries of this church so many years that it's amazing. I think of your history 
and you're crossing the Jordan to a new land 12 or 13 years ago. I think to how much spirit and courage that took. I'm right where I want to be. A congregation that knows how to worship. A congregation that loves to worship. That engages in all that's going on in worship. A congregation that loves each other and prays for each other. Visibly and constantly. A congregation that not only studies the word, but will reach out and take the homeless into their arms and love them into someone new. A congregation that God has put together for all kinds of distinct purposes. At Thanksgiving, I'm glad to be here. And yet, there are things for us to do, aren't there? There's always that and yet. Not only was I kind of living with, within the stress and strain of what had gone on in our world, but yesterday on about the fourth or fifth hole of the golf course where I did an unusual thing playing golf on Saturday, the phone rang and I decided I needed to answer it instead of waiting. And I picked it up and it was a voice message from Martha Ray. Martha Ray, wife of Frank Ray in Paris, Texas, Two very close friends that I had known and been their pastor for eight years in that time and friends ever since. And I got the news that Frank was losing the battle with cancer. They had quit chemo. They had called in hospice. And the doctors suggested they have an early Thanksgiving and that family should be called to come in this weekend. I know that I didn't play very well the rest of the day. I wasn't playing that well before it, but it got worse because I knew I needed to be driving instead of playing golf, and I also knew I didn't really need to play golf, and yet Frank would have said, finish your round of golf and come see me, being a golf partner that he was for so many years. Then I called Sally and told her we would be going to Paris yesterday afternoon, so we drove up to spend the night, and there he was, all six foot four, 145 pounds, still clear-headed, still with that silly little smile on his face that he got. Frank never said very many words. You can imagine how our friendship went. He was so, so much a Boy Scout, an Eagle Scout, an athlete, never did anything wrong. Made all the right kind of decisions. Never did anything to cause pancreatic cancer that is ravaging his body now. And there he was. And I'll admit that that was kind of all that was on my mind as we talked and visited. And I smiled a smile that wasn't there. And we made jokes about things we'd enjoyed. And we talked about his final service and with his children, with his wife, and with him. Him hardly saying anything, just like always. And then we left. And we drove the two hours back home and got into bed and went to sleep. 
And I woke up this morning with a new thing I'm going to tell him this Wednesday when I go back to see him again, assuming he's still there. And I'm going to tell him to start looking for the new thing that God is about to do in Frank Ray. Because though he is leaving us as we prayed yesterday together, he's not leaving us for nowhere, he's leaving us for somewhere. Somewhere where Jesus is and somewhere where he's going. And he needs to think about this new thing that's called life apart from this body and life that is spiritually and completely present with Jesus for the rest of eternity. And he needs to start talking to Jesus every time he goes to bed because he may wake up talking to Jesus face to face. He needs to think about not the fear of the unknown or not the fear of the not fully explained. He needs to go to bed and wake up every day and every moment thinking about life in the presence of the one who does not die and has conquered death. He needs to get ready because any moment now, the future reality for us all who believe in Christ will be his present reality. And his family is gloriously confident that God is going to deliver him from this body of death and give him a new body that will never, ever die. He needs to know it's going to be different. And he needs to be getting ready for it now. But don't we all? This is a short thing we do here. I'm 64. Frank is only 73. And up until two and a half years ago, after having retired at age 70, he was a picture of health. And then suddenly he wasn't. There's no... I've been looking for the guarantee. Trust me. When I was younger, I was ready to bargain for 80. Give me 80 and I'll sign now. Okay, then I got a little older and I thought, well, 85 is not such a bad number. 85 sounds good. And now I'm thinking, you, you know, I'm probably going to be good at 95. Who knows? Because God may still need me here. And then again, maybe I won't be here. It's really somewhat out of my hands. If the picture of health and healthiness who's hiked all across this country with his wife hand in hand viewing the marvels of the world can get pancreatic cancer, never having smoked or done anything uh, that you could attribute to causing it, can lie there dying. I guess it could happen to me. I'm not expecting it, but it could happen. Could it also be the same way for the community of Christ in some way? Could we not be expecting death even though the signs of death might be around us? Could it be that somehow in some ways we can live in such a way that we hasten our own death? And if that would be the case, why aren't the preachers and pastors of the day and the leaders in congregations figuring out how to avoid spiritual death in churches across this land. I'm still struggling with that really, really large question. In this space, I'm sure they were too. He says, 
Do not call to mind the former things, the past things. I'm going to do something new. And my chosen people will praise my name. Now, we love predictable. We don't care too much for surprises unless we know they're going to be good. You know, one of the things that tells you how much we like surprises, how many parents know where they're going to have a boy or a girl before they're born now? Most, right? Most of them can't stand the temptation to know how to decorate the baby room. I can remember nine months of talking about whether it's going to be a boy or a girl. I was sure it's going to be a boy. And instead, I got Sarah. And then instead, I got Rachel. Twice I was sure, and twice I was wrong. And twice I would not trade either what I got for what I had imagined. God knew that in my, his wisdom, I think, that I needed two girls. Probably to help Sally, because she was still trying to raise me after all. <laughs> and it's been a, been a hard job. God says, in the midst of all that, I'm going to do a new thing. Wow. What does a new thing look like for church? And that's where I'm going to quit today and talk about this new thing. Gil Rendell, an author, an officer at Texas Methodist Foundation and some of the church guru, wrote a, a, a pamphlet that Texas Methodist produced and sent out to pastors and supporters across the country and it talked about who the church is today and what we need to become talked about a culture of change that's so rapid and unpredictable a time when both the old and the new exist together that almost sounds like life doesn't it the old and the new exist together this new spirit saved by Jesus is living in this old sinful body all at the same time and he talked about that old and the new existing together in such a way that I found very powerfully attractive because he used words and phrases and just a way of putting it together that I had not thought of before. He says that there is existing in our culture today both the affiliated, the communal, who have a communal allegiance to Christ, and the unaffiliated, who also have communal allegiance to Christ, and yet they were very different groups. They are very different communities. One of them has experienced economic realities, formed values, have a view of institutions and membership, much like is common for the last 50 to 100 years. While the other set of the unaffiliated see a different world. They have different economic realities they're not counting on a long-term pension someone else is going to provide they're not counting that life will always be better for them financially than it was for their parents they're not counting on the same values they see things differently than the affiliated group do they do not belong to institutions nor do they cherish them in many cases neither do they respect them because they feel like 
that much more important than institutions are communities or movements where they can get their hands into the world and bring about change individually and corporately that matters. doesn't have to be highly organized. It just has to be lived into. And the problem with that is those people look at church and goes, I don't need it. In fact, Something like 70% of millennials in the country, the largest population group, they have now surpassed the baby boomers in the world, think the church is irrelevant. They don't want to hear about it. They don't care to learn about it. They're just not interested. That's what we learned Thursday. The only way to get them interested, that 70%, now 30% of them are in church. So if you're one of the 30%, reach around, tap yourself on the back and say, good boy, good girl. Yeah, because some of you are. I see you millennials out there. I see you. But most of your friends aren't in church. They don't think it matters. They still like the idea of Jesus. They just don't buy the whole organized membership thing. And the trouble with those of us my age and 20 years younger is the only way we know church is this church. It's the organized church. It's the institutionalized church where we find our comfort. And we don't mind helping the millennials along, but what about our church, right? That's the struggle it's always been for congregations. We work ourselves silly just trying to keep the institutional church going, and along comes a whole group of people that says, you're kind of irrelevant. You don't really have anything to say. Look at what you've done with the world. And it's at that point we have to go, guilty, guilty. Cultures are guilty. And we say, well, we're not really guilty. It's those bad people out there that are guilty. That's right. You're right about that at times. And yet at times we are among those who are probably causing some of the problems, at least from their perspective. Do you know that a lot of that generation like to wear body art? What's up with that? I was taught very young, ink. They call it ink now. See, it's already changed three times. We used to call it tattoos. You know, they got it in the Navy when they sailed around a certain point. You know, but now it's different things. Ink is in. I remember the first time I saw somebody who was all inked up. I was like, oh, my word. Do they know what that looks like? Now some of my best friends are all inked up. Do I care? Not a whit, as long as they keep most of it covered. (laughs) Every now and then I go somewhere where people are not fully clothed, and I see all of that, and I'm like, really, this is pretty distracting. But anyhow, they like it. So what do I really care? The ink doesn't change the heart. The ink doesn't change the image of God. The ink doesn't mind that they're, mean that they're any less loved by God. It's like hair in my generation. How long your hair was didn't make you a saint or a sinner. But people thought it did because their culture said, don't do it. Now we have two cultures trying to live together One of them is the unaffiliated with institutions and one is the affiliated. One is dying off and one is rising in prominence and number and they know two very different worlds. And Gil Rendell says, it scares me to death, says the church has to minister to both of them. We have to continue to do what we we call new, which is really only improving the old, but we have to do radically new ministry in radically different ways if we're going to present the Jesus we love in a way that the Jesus can be heard and seen by a younger generation. It doesn't mean that we're changing the gospel. It means we're changing the model of how we live out following the one, the one Savior, Jesus. 
For us to want to find them, get them, it can't be bait and switch. <laughs> we think we'll find them, then we'll bring them into our worship, right? And they'll like it. Not so much. You know, we want to bring in their, their ways, see them change their ways, and a lot of their ways will change. But the way they express their faith and the way they serve their God and the way they use their time may be drastically different than us. You know how big a headache that is? If you're a pastor trying to orchestrate that with the same amount of budget and the same amount of workers, and this guy clown in this book is telling me to have two churches at the same time, and he says every church needs to be doing that. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. He's right. He's right. We've already begun to do it, but, you know, change doesn't happen in a straight, linear fashion that's easy to control. Change is hopping about all the time. Yesterday, my wife had the nerve to start talking about cell phones. I don't know why. Maybe she thought it was a safe topic. We were on the way back from Paris. I was in the car, and she with me, for two hours each way, and we were kind of stuck. And she started talking about cell phones. Remember the bag phones, 1973? She remembers the big show on TV where the guy goes on TV and is on this thing that weighs 10 pounds as a cell phone. And because it was mobile, it wasn't in a bag anymore. And I went, don't you? She said, don't you remember that? And I went, no. I don't remember much. Last week. I, I, don't, I don't know why that is about me. I'm kind of weird. I only remember past things when I can get in a good fight about it. And I'm usually arguing about what I don't really remember, but I love to argue, so there we go. Sally remembers everything, the color of the purse, the size shoes they were wearing, their hair, the way they did it, you know, whose house we were at on such and such day, and I'm like, ah, you don't remember that. Of course, then she goes home and starts finding pictures to prove it. <laughs> so, no, no, so aggravating, that little woman. I just don't remember the past. I enjoy the past, and I don't remember big things. Like, I don't, I don't remember every round of golf, but everyone I beat Gary, I remember pretty well. <laughs> everyone he meets me, I forget. They're gone. I have a lot of power to forget. So I look at my church, and I look at what Jesus says about that congregation of Israelites who weren't what he wanted exactly, but they were on the road to what he was doing and he says, you are my witnesses, not the future you, you are my witnesses, just like you are. Not everything you do, because you mess it up anyway, just like the disciples will mess it up when they come, and just like we mess it up today, don't we? We're not perfect. Neither were they, and we're never going to be, but we are the witnesses of a God who's so divine, so filled with love and mercy and grace that he could save us, forgive us, and transform us. And we have that message to share to the world that anybody wants to hear. They just don't want to come here to hear it on Sunday morning. So we have to take it to them. We have to take the gospel to them in a surprising way that they can't miss it because it intersects with where they really live. And that's what Jesus cares is all about. And Jesus really does care. He really does care about every human being. And what does that have to do with us? We need a church that's on two, two tracks. Actually, I would say three, but I didn't write the article. We need a track that celebrates 
and improves the way we celebrate our traditions and our rituals that are so meaningful for those who participate in them. And we need to teach what they mean and why they are so meaningful to the younger people in our world. And they need to be able to look at us and say, I think you really do believe that. So if your rituals are not really meaningful to you, quit practicing them because nobody's fooled. When I go into churches and they tell me they're worshiping, and they say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I'm going, you don't really believe that. Now, when we sing it, I believe in God the Father. You can believe it. You can see people getting into it. You can see a new expression of an old creed. A way to say words that are powerful to any generation. A way to worship in a blended kind of way where everybody has some kind of access to it. Message is the same. Methods are different. We must improve the old. We must birth the new. And that's why I think I'm still alive. I know it's why I'm still in church. Because I believe that in certain places, God is going to model this behavior in certain communities of faith because they are committed enough to Christ to not be too in love with their traditions. I think that's y'all. You could prove me wrong, but it's going to be an ugly battle. (laughs) Because I really believe you have the faith, the means, the skills, And the commitment to Christ to do both. And as we start doing it, we're going to roll it out to other churches and say, you can be different. You can be more. And God needs us all to be more. We need to live in such a way that people will quit driving down streets and killing people because they think some false God has told them to. We need to live in such a powerful, loving, graceful way that the love of Christ can truly overcome the hate in people's hearts and the confusion in their minds. God needs us to be his witnesses, loving, generous, graceful, forgiving people who are so winsome that people look at us and go, who is that old man and woman over there? I want to be like them because their parents were not. Because they've not seen that model enough in the church. They see the judgmental, bigoted, separatist groups in churches that separate from everybody else and judge everybody else. Now, I don't believe they're right. But they believe they are, so much so they are going the other way. And one by one, Jesus cares so much for them, he wants to win them back. And I want to be part of that while I'm alive. You are special, special people. God has chosen you. How good does that make us feel That God, though he knows us inwardly and knows that we're a mixture of good and evil at all times, has put his stake in us. His whole godhood has been entrusted to the likes of those Israelites. Oh, my goodness, what a mess they were. To those first disciples, think about them. And now with us. If that doesn't raise your self-esteem 
and knowing that God wants you to be his child and he loves who you are, even in your imperfections, that you're not listening because God is whispering in your love, in your ear constantly, I love you. We need a vision plan to help us go forward in those kind of ways. We need a vision that's larger than our church and larger than our city. We need a vision that is as big as the heart of God. And that's why I'm asking you tonight, or this morning rather, it's not night yet, right? No, it's not, but it's a lot longer than I thought it would be. Wow. We are turning in an estimate of giving card this morning. You have one in your bulletin. If you didn't bring one with you, you forgot to bring it with you. And I know that there are many people absent today. For whatever reason, it's that time of year. That's okay. But as we sing our closing hymn today, we're going to ask you to bring that giving card and put it in this basket or lay it on the chancel rail. Wherever you want to leave it, we'll gather it. That is uh, your plan, how you are planning to give a part of what God has given you for the ministry of this church next year. We know it won't be enough. It never is. Don't worry about that. All you need to worry about is giving what God is calling you to give. And then the finance committee and the officers of the church will get together. They will decide how to use all the resources we have, including what, they, what you plan to give next year, to do all the ministry that we can for the world in which God is working, the world all around us. As we sing, we just ask you to bring them down and leave them on the chancel royal, and then we'll gather them all together. At the end, we'll bless them and pray for them. And then they will begin calling those people who aren't here today, or those people who didn't mail them in, so that they get a friendly call from Doug. Or if there's too many of them, and I think there may be, a friendly call from somebody from this church who cares and reminds them to bring it in so we can begin our plans for next year. Thank you for that. As we stand and sing, if you're here today and you don't know this Jesus I'm talking about, you wandered in here and you, well, I'm going to try church today, and you're like, I wonder what this group is like. I'll tell you what we're like. We're like a group of followers who believes that anybody can have access to God through Jesus Christ who will just open their heart to Jesus. And if you don't know that Jesus, we'll be glad to introduce you to that Jesus today, this morning, right now. If you're here and you know that Jesus, but you're wandering around, don't know, thinking you have to do it all alone, you don't have to. We're here. We're looking for more family members, and you could be one of those. Just come forward and tell us you want to be one of us, and we'll be glad to have you as we stand and sing together and as you bring your plans for next year.